Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're looking at the subject of Bereans polity. Church polity is a branch of ecclesiology that addresses the organizational structure or hierarchy of the church. This is our second message on this. Uh, we saw last time that there are basically three types of church government that have developed in the various Christian denominations. And there's, you know, forms of each one of these. They kind of get blended together. The first one is Episcopal. Now, this is a bishopric, basically. This is a one man who runs the show. Nobody votes. Nobody has anything to say. This guy is, he's the Pope. He's leading the charge. And everybody just lines up under that. All right. Then there is the congregational rule. This is everybody has a say. So you got one branch and nobody has a say but one man. The other branch, everybody's got a say. And, and there are, these, these two can kind of merge together. I was in a Baptist church, and a Baptist church is congregational rule, so to speak, but we had a bishopric because the pastor was basically calling all the shots and doing whatever. You know, we did have a vote once in a while on, you know, what color the carpet should be or something stupid like that, you know, but, so these can get merged. And then there is the Presbyterian form. This is basically what we hold to here. This is a, where a, a representative group of the church, a group of men, a group of elders, make the decisions, they lead the church. Now, we also saw last time that there are three terms used in the New Testament to describe church leaders. You're not going to find this Episcopal, Congregation, Presbyterian in the Scriptures. These are just forms of government that have come, hopefully, out of the Scriptures. Well, not all of them, obviously, but, you know, <clears throat> that's where they say they get it from. Alright, church leaders. We have elders, we have bishops, and then we have pastor. The most widely used New Testament designation for a church leader is what? Elder. Alright? Elders. Elders is the Greek word presbuteros. It's used 70 times in the New Testament to refer to those mature in age. Then you have bishops, which is from episkopos. It means guardian or overseer. It's used five times in the New Testament. Once of Christ, 1 Peter 2.25, and four other times to refer to church leaders. It's always plural. Elders is always plural. Bishops is always plural. And then pastors from the Greek, poimen. It's only found once in the New Testament. Pastors are not distinct from bishops and elders. These terms are simply different ways of identifying the same people. Textual evidence indicates that all three terms refer to the same office. It's important you understand that. <clears throat> so no matter what you call them, whether you call it a pastor, you call them elder, you call them bishop, they're all referring to the same person, scripturally. And I think the New Testament makes it clear that church leadership is a team effort. Every place in the New Testament where the term presbuteros is used, it is plural. Except where John and Peter use it to talk about themselves. The norm in the New Testament church was a plurality of elders. There's no reference in all the New Testament to a one pastor congregation. And we saw last time that the chief task of the elders is found in Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul tells the elders that their task is to shepherd the church of God. 
The primary responsibility of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, is to shepherd the church, which boils down to two things. Feed and lead. They're to feed the flock by giving them the Word of God. They're to lead the flock by a godly example. So that's the main calling of the elder, of the pastor, of the bishop. They're to feed the flock. They're to lead the flock. Okay, teach them the Word of God. Model godliness for them. So the main duty of the elders is to shepherd. They have other duties in Scripture, but I think the most important by far is their calling to shepherd. Some of the other duties listed in Scripture are they determine church policy. That makes sense. They're leaders. They get together. They decide this is the doctrine for our church. This is the practice for this church. <clears throat> Excuse me. They handle uh, distribution of funds. We see in Acts 11, 29 and 30, it says, And in proportion that any ha- of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So they took this this offering and they sent it to the elders because the elders were to distribute that. And oftentimes we have people say, hey, I'd like to give this money to so-and-so, and we're like, what do you think? I'm like, I think you know you have the right to determine what you want to do there, but here's the thing with giving it to the elders. The elders hopefully know what's going on in that flock. They know if there's a genuine need there. They know what needs to happen. So, you know, it's at least it's good to ask because a lot of times, you know, money can be going in the wrong direction. All right, so they handle the distribution of the funds. Um, <clears throat> they're to teach and preach. We talked about that. First Timothy 5.17 says that. Titus says they're to exhort and refute. They're also to pray for the sick. Now, this is an interesting scripture in James 5.14. So, is anyone sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> now you think, well, can anybody pray? Why do they got to have the elders pray for him? Well, like I said, this is an unusual scripture. And, and the idea here, if you get in the Greek, is this man has sinned. And so he's coming to the elders to confess the sin and they are praying over him, anointing him with oil. And, the, and it says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Alright, so there's more involved here, but, you know, of course it's, the elders do pray for people. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, if you have a special need, we have to hear about it because we're not mind readers. That would be nice. Um, <clears throat> Acts 20, 18 says, And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And if you read the following verses here, basically you get the idea the elders are giving advice to Paul, on what he is to do. So the elders are there for spiritual counsel. And so if you need advice, you know, you come to the elders. And again, we have to be asked because we're not mind readers and we don't mind, you know, telling you what, you know, the Bible has to say on a certain issue, but you have to come to us. And how does a person become an elder? Well, this, you know, will get all kinds of answers depending on who you ask. Does he need to have a degree? Is there a degree in eldership? Is there a certain degree an elder needs to have? Now, a lot of people would say yes, but let me say this. <clears throat> and I heard this from a rabbi. The rabbi, you know, told his class of, you know, Orthodox Jews, they came, he says, you got to be here because you want to know God. You want to know Him more, you want to know Him more intimately. If you're here for a degree, he says, you need to get up and leave right now, because he said, thermometers have degrees, 
And you know what we do with those. And I don't mean to put down degrees, but it has nothing to do with this, okay? A degree, you don't get a degree in spirituality, alright? So that's not going to help you. So what, what do they need? I mean, what is, what are the biblical requirements? Well, they're found in, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. It says, this is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. I see from this text two requirements of elders. First, he must have a desire in his heart for the work. He says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. The word aspires here is the Greek word oregomai. And it means to reach out after, to long for, to covet, to desire. In other words, there's a desire in their heart to shepherd the people of God. That's the main thing. That's, that's, they've got to have that. And the second qualification is an overseer then must be. And then he lists what the qualifications of the elders. So he has to have a desire and he has to be qualified. And the qualifications don't have anything to do with degree or schooling. They have to do with these moral requirements that are laid out here in the text. <clears throat> now, I want to look at a couple facts about the office of elder that we find in our text of 1 Timothy 3. First of all, we see that it is an important office. You know, he says it is a trustworthy statement. This phrase is used five times by Paul in the pastoral epistles. It is a basically a creed or a formula, and it was reserved for things of great significance. If you look at the five in here, you'll see this is used of something that's very important when he says this. Let me show you just two of them so you can get the significance of how important it is. He says, it is a tr- trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Yeshua came in the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So here you have a statement that Christ came into the world. You see the importance of that. To save sinners. It's also used in 2 Timothy 2.11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Again, you see the importance of these statements. So there's a high value placed on church leadership by the early church. And as we look through the New Testament, we see that elders were very important in the early church from about Acts 14 on. See, this whole thing got started, then they started, you know, the apostles started appointing elders and setting up these churches, so there's some kind of government for these churches when the apostles move on. <clears throat> now, let me just say that the position back then is probably a lot different than it is today. Um, you can rest assured that in Paul's day, the, the leaders of the church didn't occupy a plush air-conditioned office with a big desk, a cushion chair, and a secretary, and maybe if you're a televangelist, a private jet. You know, they didn't have all that stuff. You know, they, they risked their lives in doing what they were doing, and many still do that today around the country. We hear about that every week in Voice of the Martyrs, that people put their lives at risk to, to lead the church of God. <clears throat> So eldership is an important office, all right? I think we all understand that. Now, this one maybe stirs up a little controversy. Secondly, it's a restricted office. The elder is to be a male. There are no female elders. Anybody ready to fight over that? Huh? No? Good. I know some people will take offense to that, but let me show you why I think that is. 
hopefully I'm pulling this out of, out of the text and not, you know, my own prejudice, my own desires. And we fight with that, people. You know, you know, sometimes I question, why do I hold this biblical position? Is it some kind of prejudice in me or do I get it from the text? Now, I always think I get it from the text. But, you know, do I really get it from the text? Or am I being influenced in a certain way? And, and those are questions I think we always have to ask ourselves. Verse 1 says, it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. Now, a literal rendering of this text from the Greek reads like this. Trustworthy statement, anyone overseer aspires, fine work desires. Now, I showed you the literal there because do you see anything in there about a man? You see in the English it says, if any man aspires to the office. But... The Greek says, anyone overseer aspires. So people say, see, it doesn't say man, so why do you say it's a man? Well, verses 2 through 6 of this text, all the adjectives are in the masculine gender. Verse 2 says this, the husband of one wife. Now, husband is from the Greek word aner, which means man or husband, See, Greek doesn't have a specific word for husband. They, they just use man. The word for wife here is gune, which means woman or wife. <clears throat> so to be the husband of a wife, you got to be a man. You follow me there? I know that's not, that's not too difficult, right? How does a wife... Now, we're, let's take out our present age. Okay, now, Let's not count what we see going on in our country here about, you know... Same-sex marriages. They had no concept or clue of that. The husband of one wife means a man who has a wife. It's not about two women or anything like that. All right, Let's not put that nonsense in there. All right. Then in verse 4 it says this. He must be one who manages his own household well. Alright, the word for manage here is the Greek proistomi. And it means to stand before, to preside or rule. The Bible unequivocally teaches that the husband is to function as the head of the family. And the wife subordinates herself in the marriage union to the husband. The roles of husband and wife, so carefully revealed in the Scripture, must not be reversed in the church family. You don't say, yeah, in the house, the husband should rule, but when you get to the church, let the women tell you what to do. That's not how it's laid out. And also, I want you to notice the context of these verses. Alright, because, you know, there, like I said, there's a lot of argument about this today. You know, people say, oh, well, the women have a lot to offer. I am not questioning that a bit. Okay? My position here is strictly, I believe, based on the Scripture. So let's back up in this text a little bit. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. <clears throat> I do not allow a woman to teach. Okay? False talking here. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over the man. Now there's a question, are these two different things or is the teaching the exercising of authority? And in, well, However you take it, it doesn't matter. A woman is not to teach in the church to men. She's not to exercise authority over men. It says, but to remain quiet. Now that doesn't mean she's not allowed to say something in church, a testimony or anything like that. It's talking about teaching here. About ruling. <clears throat> but to remain quiet. Now, a lot of people say, well, this was just cultural. This was back in that culture. Well, look what he says next. He says, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was formed, created first, and then Eve. So he's taking it back to Adam and Eve. That, to me, says this is not culture. All right? And it was not Adam who was deceived, 
But the woman, now he's telling you, he's giving you here what, why this position is. He says, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he's saying here, woman can't rule in the church. She can't lead the church. But then he says this, but she'll be preserved. Some translations say she'll be saved through childbearing. The the idea of bearing children here doesn't mean giving birth. It's the idea of training up children. And so what it's saying here, women don't find their meaning in life in running the church and being involved in ruling the church. They find it in bearing children, raising the children. That is the purpose of women. So he's trying to say, women, don't feel left out because you don't rule in the church. You're training the children who, you know, are going to rule in the church. So, I think the scriptures are clear that an elder has to be a man. Look at the divine pattern of authority, 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Anybody got a problem with that? Christ being the head? No. But we have a problem with the next one. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. The word head here is kephale. It means government or authority. And it's my understanding that men are to lead in the church. Now, <clears throat> a woman can be a deacon, because I think the same passage and later on in Timothy talks about a woman, a deaconess, but she cannot be an elder. An elder, the office of elder is restricted to men. I believe biblically. Now, you're going to find all kinds of women elders in the church, you know, <clears throat> and what, what people do is their own business, I guess, but you won't see it here, alright? In verses 2 through 7, Paul goes on to lay out the qualifications of an elder. And as you look at these qualifications, you see that what God is looking for is character. Alright, that's what you see in these verses. He says, first of all, he says, an overseer then must be above reproach. Now, in the Greek, the first word in this verse is day, which is a particle that emphasizes absolute necessity. He must be, this is the number one overarching thing, he must be above reproach. This is the Greek word, anapoletos. And it means, not apprehended, that cannot be laid hold of. It has the idea of he is beyond accusation. It is an unmarred life by habit or incident. It means without stain or spot, There's nothing in his life which you can point at as a moral defect and say, that man has failed here. Now listen, it doesn't mean sinless. Okay, we know that. It doesn't mean faultless. But he has nothing in his life which everyone can point to as an obvious defect in character or behavior. This is so important that we get this. The reason God appointed elders, okay, lead and feed. The lead is done by example. So if you degrade the example, you degrade all the way down. Now, since all saints are to live holy, blameless lives, everything you see here for an elder should be true of everyone who is a Christian. But the elders are to be here as an example. 1 Peter 5.3 says, proving to be examples for the flock. They have to have a life that is above reproach. This is indispensable to Christian to a Christian leader. Now, <clears throat> let me share a story with you, a true story. There was a man who had served as a pastor for 13 years in four different churches over the 13 years. 
During that time, it was exposed that he had committed adultery with ten different women over the 13 years. Ten, this is a pastor, ten different women. When it was found out, it would have kept going, obviously, if you didn't get caught. See, that's the thing. People get caught and then they're all repentant and tearful and I'm so sorry I got caught, what they should have said. Alright? Well, when they did find out, they removed him as a pastor. Give him applause for that. After two years of discipline, they reordained him and he went off to another church to pastor again. And my question here is, how is he above reproach? Would you want your daughter or your wife going to this pastor for counseling? I know countless stories like this, people. I know big organizations that a guy commits adultery and they remove him. And then what they do is they use him as a ghostwriter. He's there, he's on staff, but he's under the radar. No one knows he's there and he's still doing all the things, you know. It's just the church doesn't like to deal with this. Commenting on this adulterous pastor, another pastor said this, I think he's probably better equipped to serve Christ today than most of us who have never been through the terribly painful process of discipline and restoration. This man is now better equipped thanks to his ten adulterous relationships. What? Do people even think to say stuff like this? How is he better equipped? So sin will better equip me to serve Christ? This is just nonsense. It's foolishness. How is he above reproach? That would be my only question. Does any pastor who has committed adultery fit the qualification of being above reproach? I don't think they do. And I don't think they could say like Paul says in Philippians 4.9. And this is, this is something we all should be able to say to those we're trying to disciple. We should be able to say to our children. We should be able to say to those in the church. The things, this is Paul, the things you've learned, the things you've received, the things you've heard and seen in me, do them, basically. Practice these things. Paul's saying, do what I do. You ever heard a parent say, do as I say, not as I do? No, that's not. Follow me, saying, do what I do. Richard Baxter said this, an unholy pastor is like a stained glass window. He's just a religious figure that keeps the light out. Is that true? You get, you get that? You know, that's the thing. Now, how much damage do we do to the church? You know, when this stuff goes on and on and on in the church. It's like this is almost the norm in churches. And let me tell you, I, I've seen it happen over and over in churches where, you know, the, if the church takes off and the church is growing, and, and listen, you measure a church today, well, let's say the majority of people measure a church today by its growth. If you're growing, you're alive, God's there, all, you know, if it's growing, then you got this pastor who's all of a sudden gets the big head. He thinks he is somebody, and he, you know, the next thing you know, there's adultery. Why? Because he just thinks he's, you know, some superstar now. And it's just a, it's a sad thing. And you know, people say, well, okay, this guy sinned, right? What about forgiveness? What about forgiveness? Can he be forgiven? Absolutely, he can be forgiven. Can he be restored to fellowship? Absolutely. Can he put back in the pastorate? How's he above reproach? How is he above reproach? He's disqualified himself. Now, again, I'm not making this stuff up. 
This is what the scripture says. He has to be above reproach. But I've seen it over and over in this town. When a pastor gets caught, they leave and they start a new church called Ministering Love and Forgiveness. I mean, really, one of the churches was named that, you know, because he wanted to, ah, I just thought, this is a forgiving church. We forgive everybody. Forgiveness is different than what we're talking about here. Yes, you can be forgiven if you're repentant of that sin. But listen, people, if a Christian goes out, robs a bank, kills a couple people, later gets caught, and he's before the judge, and he says, Judge, I've repented. God has forgiven me. Judge goes, that's nice. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. You're still forgiven, but you're still going to pay for what you did. You know, this forgiveness doesn't wipe the slate clean with everything else in society. And it doesn't do that with a pastor because now he is disqualified. Because that he is now no longer above reproach. I think adultery is a very serious thing. We downplay it too much. Way too much in the church today. The elder is to be above reproach in four areas. He lists them in the text here. He's to be above reproach in his moral character, in his home life, in his spiritual maturity, and his reputation. Well, let's look at these different areas. An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. This is a controversial phrase. I'm sure you understand that. But here's the thing we have to understand, people. A wrong interpretation here would restrict needed qualified men from eldership or permit unqualified men to have a place of leadership that God forbids. So we have to try to do the best we can to understand this. It says the husband of one wife. There's no definite article here in the Greek and thus it could be rendered literally a one wife husband or, I think this is a better translation, a one woman man. Now I'll explain that a little bit later. The adjective one receives the emphasis in the phrase inferring that an overseer has to have nothing to do with other women. He's a one woman man. He's a man totally devoted to the one woman in his life. All right, He's not looking at all everybody else. All marital sins disqualify a person from overseership. This is not stressing marital status. This is stressing character here. Now, there's five views on this that I found, and I know there's got to be more on this, what it means a husband and one wife, but there's five major views here, and I want you to, let's look at them. I'm not going to go into detail here. I just want you to know what some of these views are, because some of them are, are kind of funny. Uh, the meaning of husband of one wife. One view says it means that the man's married to the church. Anyone to guess what denomination this comes out of? Roman Catholicism. Absolutely. All right. This verse is used to support celibacy for priests. He's just devoted to the church. That's the woman in his life. No other women. Okay, that's a little stretch here. Okay. I don't know how that came up with that, but that's how people do. All right. See, some people say this is a prohibition against polygamy. All right. That's a, you know, that's kind of a common one. But the phrase husband of one wife is the exact same Greek phrase used in this verse. In 1 Timothy 5, 9 where it says the wife of one man. Same phrase here, except the terms are switched. So whatever one means, the other means. And since women don't have multiple husbands, I don't think it's referring to polygamy. Polygamy was not really an issue at the time that Paul wrote this either. All right, So I don't think it's dealing with polygamy. I don't think a polygamous person could be an elder, but that's not, okay, that's not what it's dealing with here. Prohibition of remarried widowers. 
All right. So some people say he's one. He can only have one wife. So if his wife dies and he gets another one, no, can't do that. All right. Pop-ups. The problem with this is that Scripture does not speak against remarriage of a widowed person. It just doesn't speak against that. Look at First Corinthians seven thirty-nine. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free. To be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So second marriages don't restrict men from service in the church. If the spouse dies, the surviving spouse is free to marry. So, you know, they want to take, they want to just focus on the one and kind of exclude the rest of scripture. A fourth view, it's prohibition of unmarried men. Some people say, well, you got to be the husband of one wife. So guess what? You have to have a wife. But this phrase doesn't say he must be the husband of a wife. Paul doesn't, you know, disparage or look down on the unmarried state. I think it's good for an elder to be married. I think it, you know, it's hard to think of someone unmarried giving marriage counseling. You know, Bill Gothard, he did the Bill Gothard seminar. He would tell all you about marriage, and I'm sitting there shaking my head thinking, you're a clueless. You've never had a wife. You don't have a wife. How can you tell anybody about how to be married? I mean, really, how can you do that? You know, how do you tell people and counsel people on something you don't know anything about? So, you know, I think it's advantageous to be, but I mean, he doesn't have to be. All right? And then there's prohibition against divorce. Now, this is probably the biggest one because you understand that today divorce is the unpardonable sin in the church. Okay? By far. I think it's just huge in the church. But if someone is divorced, you don't just say, okay, they're divorced, that's it, we disqualify them. We've got to look into this thing a little bit more. You need to find out some more information. For example, what if the man was married, divorced, and then he became a Christian? Are we holding people's pre-Christian sins against them? Paul would be in trouble, wouldn't he? And this guy's a Christian killer. You know? He's a blasphemer, Christian killer. Listen, I just I never understood that. I don't know how you hold someone's how are someone supposed to live righteously and godly who didn't know God. All right, they come to faith in Christ. They're new creatures. They're you know they're in Christ now. So I think that you know we have to look at that. I think that has to play a part. You can't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian. And if someone was divorced, I think we have to have some more information. We need to know. What were the conditions of the divorce? Was his divorce biblical? You say biblical? There's biblical divorce? I believe there's biblical divorce. I think there's two grounds in the New Testament for divorce. And listen, here's the thing we have to understand. If there's grounds for divorce, there's grounds for remarriage. If you can get divorced, you're free. And if someone hasn't sinned, why do we restrict him based on our prejudices? All right, let's look at what are the two biblical grounds for divorce. First of all, Matthew 19.9, Yeshua speaking, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. All right, what exactly is immorality? That's the first thing we have to understand here. The Greek word is pornea. Not to pick on Gothard, but Gothard, Gothard was totally against divorce for any reason. And so what he did is he redefined pornea here. He defined pornea as a homosexual marriage. Which in my mind is not a marriage. So how do you, you know, 
So how does that work? But he, he redefined it narrowly like that. And then he used an illustration. He says, you know, out of my ranch, I have these geese. They're wild geese. You know, we got them in a pen and all these geese. And they're very happy there. And we feed them and they take care of them. But if we get a hole in the fence and one geese gets out, they all just follow. So his basically, he said that to say, if you make an exception, everybody uses it. Well, my problem is, who made the exception? Yeshua. He said, except. Except for this. Okay? <clears throat> Pornia, in the New Testament, it, I, I find basically the four different meanings of it. Voluntary sexual intercourse of an unmarried person with someone of the opposite sex. Secondly, a synonym for adultery, which is sexual relations with someone other than one spouse or with the spouse of another. Thirdly, harlotry, prostitution, and four various forms of sexual sin, such as homosexuality or bestiality. All right? It is, pornea is a very broad term. Basically means any type of sexual sin. Disqualifies. All right? Now, the word accept here has far-reaching importance attached to it. The question of remarriage kind of hangs on this. Does it allow divorce, but not remarriage? Well, accept means to take out, outside of, to exclude, to leave out, apart from. When a person hears the word accept, he immediately thinks, not including, right? He assumes that whatever is accepted is left out. For example, every human being ever born will die and spend eternity separated from Christ. Except those who trust Yeshua. That's a big exception, isn't it? That exception you want all you all want in on, okay? So there is an exception to the no divorce rule. And that is sexual immorality. When a divorce is because of immorality, the innocent party is free to remarry. Because they had a legitimate biblical divorce, they're free to remarry. Alright, so any kind of sexual sin. Now, is divorce permitted in the Scripture for anything other than fornication? The answer is no and yes. Okay? The answer is for Christians, no. For a Christian and a non-Christian, yes. For two believers, the only ground for divorce is pornea, sexual sin. But in 1 Corinthians 7, we find another important passage dealing with divorce and remarriage. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. Alright, you get the tone here. Brother, unbeliever. And she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband, she's a believer, she got an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the husband. In other words, you have an influence on them. You're a set-apart influence by you living a holy, righteous life before this unbeliever. For otherwise your children aren't clean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. I think the teaching is quite simple here. Paul is well familiar with the teaching of Yeshua, and he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expands that to the exception from sexual immorality to include desertion by an unbelieving partner. You know, in this culture, people are getting saved. They're becoming Christians. 
and their partner's not, and they're like just, you know, a lot of friction in this marriage. And the unbeliever says, look, I don't want, I'm sick of this holy roller. I want to get out of here. He says, let him go. He says, if you're, a, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, stay with them if you can. God may save them. He holds out hope for that to happen. But in verse 15, he gives us the only other biblical grounds for divorce. When an unbelieving partner leaves a believer, the believer is to let that partner leave. The scripture tells us the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Bondage to what? Bondage to the law of marriage. They're free from the law because the spouse has died, the marriage is dissolved. Alright? So there are really only three things that biblically release a marriage partner from a marriage. Number one, any kind of sexual sin. An unbelieving partner leaves an unbeliever or the death of a marriage partner. Those are the only things that, that's, that end a marriage. That's the plain teaching of Scripture. So if a man had a biblical divorce, he's free to remarry. His biblical divorce does not disqualify him from serving as an elder. But that's stuff that has to be looked into and found out. We have to understand that. So he has to be the husband of one wife. And as I said, this, this term basically means he is a one-woman man. He is a man who is totally devoted to the one woman in his life. It's a moral thing. He's focused on that woman. Loyalty, faithfulness. It means that an overseer must have an exclusive relationship with one woman. It's calling for exemplary, irreproachable conduct in marriage. That's what it's talking about here. Not how many wives you had, not how many, you know, all this other stuff. It's are you devoted to that one woman in your life? When you take a man and put him back in the ministry who's been involved in adultery, you just lowered the standard of God. Being a church pastor, elder is a high calling because the future of the church rests on its leadership. They're models of what God wants us all to be. Everything rises and falls on leadership and he's no longer a model of virtue if he's been involved in adultery. Now, I, I know that this would you know, cut out three quarters of the pastors, you know, but it's just a biblical standard and you can't, you can't mess with it. All right. Adultery people, here's the, the problem. We just don't think it's a big deal anymore. Adultery is a sin. It violates marriage. It wrecks homes. It injures innocent children. It attacks everything that Yahweh holds dear. It's unholy. So to answer the question, what about a pastor who commits adultery and then repents? Do we forgive him and restore him and go on? No. He has disqualified himself. Alright? He needs to be removed from the ministry. Now, it doesn't mean he can't serve God. He, he can't be a servant of Christ, but he's not going to be a church leader. Alright. The next moral quality is that he is temperate. And we're going to move on a little quicker now. Okay, so hang on. Don't think we got to... <laughs> I'm going to move through these. Alright? This is the Greek word... Nephalios, and it means wineless, unmixed with wine. But I think it's best seen here as metaphorical. It has the meaning of being alert, watchful, clear-headed. It gives you the idea of no excess in your life, totally in control of your faculties. You kind of want a church leader to be in control of their faculties, all right? He's going to face serious problems. He's going to deal with other people's problems. You, you want to be able to make decisions. You want to have a stable, clear mind. Prudent. This is from the Greek sophron. 
And it means sober-minded or sound mind. This is the result of temperate. It's a disciplined mind. Plato defined this as the mastery of pleasure and desire. Then he has to be respectable. This is from the Greek word kosmios. It means well-behaved. If a man is kosmios in his conduct, it's because he's so fraud in his inner life. He's a disciplined mind, therefore he'll have a disciplined life. Hospitable. This is from the Greek phylloxenos, which comes from two Greek words, philos, which means to love, and xenos, which means stranger. Hospitality basically means loving strangers. You think it's giving somebody food, right? Well, that's a good way to love people, you know? But hospital, just it's the idea of you're welcoming strangers. You make them feel like they're not a stranger. I'd say it's a major character trait of Glenn. He, he's hospitable, okay? Yeah, I don't think he does know a stranger, okay? And if you meet him, then you won't be a stranger, all right? And it, it, strangers here doesn't mean that people are strange, okay? That's not, okay? It's applied to travelers or aliens and not those type of aliens. Uh, People you don't know. You're just you're welcoming people you don't know. You're making them feel welcome. You're hospitable towards them. All right. Then it says he's able to teach. Didacticos, which means skilled in teaching. This word means instruction, doctrine, teaching precepts. The root word carries with it the idea of systematic teaching or training. The word was used in a, of a choir director who trained a choir over a long period of rehearsals until they're able to perform perfectly. The curriculum of the teacher is the Word of God. The same Greek word is used in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. So, the church leaders were to be teachers. They were to teach God's people the truths of the Word of God. This is the only quality related to function here. And this is what sets elders apart from deacons. The elder is to be able to use sound doctrine to exhort believers to expose errors in those who rebel. He says, not addicted to wine. Boy, a lot of things here have to do with sober-mindedness. He's a man who's not preoccupied or overindulgent in wine or alcohol. In other words, a drunk wouldn't be good to be an elder. Okay, You got that? Pugnacious. Plague taste. It means he doesn't punch people. <laughs> this is one I got to be careful of. <laughs> he is not a striker. He doesn't deal with problems with his fist, basically. Okay, that's not the way you solve problems. He doesn't go around punching people. He's that's not how he does things. All right. He's gentle. It says not a puncher, but he's gentle. Epe case which comes from epi, which means over, and ikos, which means reasonable. It could be translated, this word here, gentle, over-reasonableness. Some have said this is one of the most untranslatable of all Greek words. And the difficulty can be seen in a number of translations given it. Wycliffe says, translates it, patience. Tyndale, softness. Cramner, softness. The Geneva Bible, the patient mind. The Reims Bible, modesty. Revised version, forbearance. And in the margin it says gentleness. Weymouth translates the forbearing spirit. New English Bible, magnanimity. The Greek themselves explain this word as justice and something better than justice. In any of these words we find the opposite of obstinance and pride. The Septuagint version of Psalm 86.5 uses the adjective to translate ready 
to forgive. Good translation. He's gentle. He's ready to forgive. You can't hold grudges against people. He is peaceable. Amakos. It means not a brawler again. He is not a quarrelsome person. His temper is under control. He doesn't insist on his own rights. You know, you don't want a guy in church leadership that's, you know, anybody disagrees with him getting punched out. Alright, that's, that's, that's not going to work well. <laughs> Free from the love of money. This is the Greek word Afalarguras, which is made up of phileo, which means fond of, and aguras, silver. The alpha prefix means he's not a lover of silver, without fondness of silver. His judgments are not influenced by money. Covetous men do great damage to the church. You know, it's just, you've heard of extortion and all the things that go on with the, the money that the church brings in. Well, you've got to have someone who is free from the love of money. All right, so he's to be above reproach in his moral character. We looked at that. It also says he's to be above reproach in his home life. And verses um, 4 and 5 of chapter 3 talk about his home life. It says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You know, the church is only going to be as healthy and strong as long as the family is healthy and strong. The church is built on families. So he must be a man who manages his household well. He is to be the head of the home. He is to be the spiritual leader. Household is more than just his wife and children here. It has the idea of stewardship. What kind of stewardship does he display on what the Lord has given him? Again, that's tied in with the idea of money. It says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. You know, if his home is not well ordered and his children are out of control, his ability to offer hospitality is greatly restricted. You get that? You want to go to somebody's house and their kids are screaming and yelling, dancing all over you and throwing stuff and busting things and you're like, well, it's been great having fellowship with you. No, I want to get out of here. Okay? And his influence on, I think, on other families is diminished when, when they're out of control. Am I done with that? Yep. Okay. Like I said, we're moving on quickly here. Spiritual maturity is the next one. He's got to be above reproach in his moral character, in his home life, and in his spiritual maturity. This is not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. A new convert here is the Greek word neophytos. I love that word. It means newly planted one. It's used only here in the New Testament. A convert is not to be placed, a new convert is not to be placed in the role of... Do you understand that? Does that make sense? You know, oh, this guy just got saved. Well, you say, why would you do that anyway? Well, I've been at churches and a guy gets saved and guess what? He's very influential. He's got a lot of money. You make a good elder. Next thing you know, he's on the board. Why? Because he's got money. So let's put him on charge of something, you know? No, it's not to be a new convert. Now, here's something that's interesting. The Ephesian church at this time had been in existence about 12 years. There were spiritual mature men there. But when Paul writes to Titus, who was on the Isle of Crete, this church is just getting established, he doesn't include this qualification. Not a neophytos. Why? Because everybody there is a brand new Christian. 
There is no spiritually mature man. So you need some people who can kind of lead and guide this thing until you get some spiritually mature men in there. And it's interesting to compare those two texts and, you, and when you compare the, the idea of the two churches and you see, you know, if you're starting a church out and there's no, you know, you got all brand new converts, what do you do? Have no leadership? No, you got to have some kind of leadership. So you got to do the best you can do to get some leadership in there. And that's why Paul, you know, told Titus, you need to, you know, ordain some elders and you get that church together, get some leadership there for it. He says, uh, so that he will not become conceited. This is a word tufao, and it means to envelop with smoke. Figuratively, to inflate with self-conceit. High-minded, to be lifted up with pride. The noun describes a person who is beclouded or stupid state of mind because he thinks he's somebody he's not. You know, that's why you don't put a new person in there. They get all, wow, look how special I am. You know, I'm over this group of people now, and you know, that's not good. It says, you'll fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, since believers are not under condemnation of death because of faith in Christ, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no katakrama to those who are in Christ. We're not condemned. The phrase here likely describes falling victim to sin. That's what he's talking about. He falls into sin because of this. So the elder is to be above reproach in his moral character, his home life, spiritual maturity, and his reputation. Now, this is an interesting qualification, 1 Timothy 3.7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's interesting, isn't it? Who is it that we're trying to win for Christ? Who is it that we're trying to share the gospel with? It's outsiders, it's unbelievers, right? The lost. How do we reach people when they have absolutely no respect for us. How do we do that? When I was a young Christian, the, the, one of the elders at the church that I went to um, <clears throat> seemed like a, a good guy. He always had this huge cross around his neck. I mean, it was probably that big, you know, this huge cross. And I thought, wow, he must be spiritual. You know, he's got a cross around his neck. <clears throat> I was in the military time. I needed a, more income. He had a, a factory. He owned a... a I don't want to get too much detail. He owned a, he owned a business in town, all right? So he, he hired me. He said, you can come work in the business, you know? And so I could work in there, and of course, I'm talking to all the guys that work there. And these guys are like, he's an elder at your church? And I'm like, yeah, why? Oh, man, I've I seen that cross curl around his neck, you know, with some of the language he uses, you know? And, and I found out, you know, working with these people that, boy, this guy was not, have a good, he did not have a good reputation with those without. I mean, the, don't go to that church. This guy's a, a leader there, and this guy's, you know. And see, people do that. They separate, well, this is my church life over here, and this is my you know, worldly life. This, that's ridiculous, you know. It is all, all of life is spiritual. And he needs to be a man who has a good reputation. You know, you don't want, you know, invite someone to church, and they get there, and they find out, that guy's a leader in your church? Oh, my word. You know, it, it makes a big difference, people. You want to have a good reputation. You want people to, to think well of you no matter where you are. Because you're representing, whether you're a leader or a Christian, you're representing Christ wherever you go, whatever you do. And how you act is a representative of Christ. That's so important. I wish Christians would understand that. We're so afraid we're going to be done wrong. That we're into our rights mentality. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, why not, why don't you just rather suffer wrong? Why don't you just suffer wrong instead of, you know, defiling the name of Christ through the things you do? 
And I think people, we got to be careful. And especially leaders, got to be careful. Because we're representing Christ. So He has to have a good reputation with those without. So moral character, home life, spiritual maturity, reputation. That's all under the banner of above reproach. Alright. I think biblical eldership is a fair and a powerful form of church leadership that avoids the pitfalls of both one-man rule and the confusion of every-man rule. The elders are to work together and decisions are made when they are in agreement. And the way we have always worked here since we were community Bible church and worked our way to where we are today is when we meet as elders and decide on something, we either had unanimity or we didn't do it. It's not like we're outvoting you. We just feel if we're all spiritual individuals, the Lord ought to be able to give us unanimity and work together and move in the same direction. I think that's important. And this whole idea of eldership prevents someone from going in an unbiblical direction. There's checks. There's balances. One-man leadership, I think, is very dangerous. It puts that man in a bad position. And also, I've always loved eldership when the church makes a decision that nobody likes. Like, hey, blame it on the elders. You know, I didn't, I didn't really want it anyway. You know? No, you got someone to blame. You know, it, so it's helpful all the way around. You've heard the, the expression "power corrupts" and "absolute power corrupts absolutely." I've seen it happen over and over. People, there's just not a lot of room for a big head in an elder type structure. All right, eldership is a high calling because the future of the church rests on its leadership. They're models of what God wants all of us to be. And the biggest decision we will ever make at Brian Bible Church is not where we'll meet, is not the color of the carpet, it's not what instruments we have. The biggest decision we'll ever make is who are its elders. Because everything rises and falls on leadership. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, I pray we've been faithful with it. We've been accurate with it. Lord, if we have not, I pray You'd reveal that to us, Lord. Father, we don't want to restrict people that are qualified or qualify people that are restricted. We understand it's Your church where You're under shepherds. I pray we'd be faithful, Lord, in the ministry of leading and feeding Your flock. Thank You, Lord, for the privilege to be here today to examine Your Word openly and freely. Thank You, Lord, for Your love for us. Amen.